A quick note to our listeners. This episode was recorded before the COVID-19 pandemic. We understand that the future may look a little different now, but we still want to share these passionate conversations. This is Mary Celeste Bell. Welcome to the BlackBerry Podcast, where we'll dive into stories and knowledge of the incredible people that are part of the BlackBerry story. You'll hear from longtime friends, amazing visiting personalities, and our own inspired team members. Chef Mashama Bailey and John Morisano are the dynamic founding duo of Savannah's The Gray. Today, you'll hear a conversation they shared at BlackBerry Farm in February 2020 during the Southerners Table event where they discuss their book, Black, White, and the Gray, the story of an unexpected friendship and a landmark restaurant. Listen in as they share how gathering around a meal and having conversations is a step in the right direction toward healing the racial divide in the South and the country. Their book released in 2021 and is available now. We're going to open with a little reading from the book and not not like in the traditional book reading way, but we think it's a good intro into the talk that we're going to, um, to give. Um, we also, we, were, we did a podcast about six or eight months ago with this woman, um, uh, it was Keisha, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, uh, and she said like, how do you guys like work stuff out? And I, we, took a pa- we take a page out of Mark's book for anybody who was at the wine tasting yesterday and we always, talk over alcohol like it's like you know you, you want to share some stuff and you're afraid to and then you have one Negroni which is what we're in it's like ah, and you know so we figured it would be fun for everybody to have if they so choose to have a beverage um, for this talk because some of it gets a little um, heavy so um, we're gonna get into it in sort of a, a non-traditional structure so we're gonna start with a little reading from the book and then we'll go from there So, Mishama, after taking it in for a minute, reacted first. I love it, she said. It's perfect. I really thought it was perfect for the space. Smart, very smart. The postcard feel, made with a bunch of old trading stamps and stickers, was not a collage that I had seen before. As I was taking it all in, I could feel Marcus staring at me, mostly because I think he believed that I didn't like it, or he thought my initial reaction wasn't a true one. At the time, we didn't know each other very well, but we'd get past all that. Thanks, Marcus said. Yeah, I'm happy with it. Marcus, a tall, skinny, pale guy with dark, curly hair and a perpetual five o'clock shadow, looked toward me. He touched the wide brim of his his floppy felt hat nervously with one hand, repositioning the love beads that hung around his neck with the other, and asked, what do you think? I need to look at it some more, I said, offering no reaction at all. I looked at it for what felt like a solid five minutes before I said a word. It concerned me. It was provocative. At first glance, it was difficult for me to interpret it as racist or hopeful or both. I don't know, I said honestly. There's a lot going on in there. I'm not sure people will get it. That's what's great about it, Mishama offered. The black people in the front of the bus. All you have to do is see that to know what this thing is about. The rest of it is kind of a mind bend, I agree. But isn't that what art is supposed to do? Make you think a little bit? I like the fact that I have to really look at it. If someone's first conclusion is that it's racist or saying something it's not saying, I think we can deal with that. Fuck them if they can't take a joke, right? (laughs) Marcus laughed. I laughed. I stood a few minutes longer. I do think it's perfect, Marcus, Mishama repeated. 
Finally, I came around. I love the piece, I do, I said, and I did. I would definitely hang this in my house, but I have to defer to you on this one for the restaurant, Mishama. If you think people are going to get it, I'm down. I think most people will get it, she said. Not all people, though. A few nights before seeing Marcus's piece, Jono and I had dinner at Local 1110, a beautiful restaurant housed in an old bank just south of Forsyth Park. Jono was sitting at the bar when I arrived, chatting with people who looked familiar to me, but I couldn't place. We were still excited to be together, a little nervous around each other, as you are in a new relationship slash partnership. I sat down next to him, greeting the bartender, asking for a glass of whatever Jono was drinking, not paying attention to his conversation. I was sipping my wine and I wanted, and I waited for him to say his goodbyes. Then Jono turned to me and asked if I realized that I was a black woman in Savannah opening a chef-driven restaurant. I was surprised and maybe even a little shocked by his phrasing. And then I wished I had eavesdropped on that conversation he was having, as this question seemed to be a result of it. Where was he going with this? John, I said calmly, I do realize that I'm a black woman. <laughs> and a chef. Is that your question? I asked, taking another sip of wine. He went on to say, do you know what it will all mean to people here? I wonder if it had to do with my food or if it had to do with my gender or my race. I was confused and I bet those people put some sort of doubt in his mind about one or more of those things. I was wondering if it was the first moment that he was confronted with the power of stereotypes or racism that might confront us at the gray. I wondered if he would be up for the challenge of opening a restaurant with someone like me. I wonder if, he would, I wonder if we would be up for the challenge of changing stereotypes um, of business relationships in a city like this. Changing someone's idea about race was a challenge I was frankly not up for. I was here to cook food and I wanted to say my piece that way. After this brief conversation, I was no longer sure it was gonna be that simple. It's provocative and it's definitely going to elicit reaction. We'll just have to be ready for that. I guess most people getting it will have to be good enough. Let's do it, Mishama said emphatically. What we're talking about um, in that passage of the book is when we went to see this painting at Marcus Kenny's um, artist studio um, because we had asked him to commission, we had commissioned him to do what we called a big splash of color in the middle of the dining room. Um, we hung the piece and exactly like the reactions that Misham and I had to it the first time we saw it, um, mine was fear, mine was, I think it might be racist, and Mishama's was? I think it's progressive, and I think that racism is a conversation we need to talk about. And we opened the gray, and I would say within the first few weeks, we had our first walkout over that painting, um, and it was white people. And everyone who has responded negatively, or not everyone, 90% of the folks who have responded negatively to that piece have been white people. Um, and that, my fear was always like, oh my God, we're gonna offend black people with that piece. <laughs> um, it's like, you know, it's just, it was like a really early example of seeing um, everything through, you know, this lens that I had, which was insular and white. Um, and um, do you have anything to add to that before I get on to Marcus's thing? 
No. <laughs> you you'll right. also I'm see like the true dynamic in our relationship, um, and we'll talk about how even the book was written, which is very similar to this dynamic. Um, so it got, it got, there, you know? it, it got so often that people were offended that we actually asked Marcus to write an artist brief about the piece, um, which I'm going to read now. So we asked Marcus to write a brief. This painting was created specifically for the gray and was commissioned by John Marsano and the Shama Valley before the business opened. I knew the task would be difficult to, be to befit the amazing marriage of architecture, food, and creativity that is the gray. And yet I tried. That was very flattering. <laughs> um, collected stories is my attempt to convey 25 years of memories, stories, and experiences I have collected whilst living in Savannah. I settled on the idea that the painting would be made in the style of the 1950s postcard, in the sense that it was an advertisement for Greyhound, the building being a former Greyhound bus terminal. The image depicts a family who has traveled from New York to Savannah, a city known as the Jewel of the South, luggage in tow. However, this isn't your typical 1950s family. This is a modern family, a family of mixed races, a world family that has traveled to visit this new version of Savannah and the South. The family poses for a snapshot in front of the time machine, the Greyhound bus, that has transported them. An apprehensive father stands next to his excited wife, placing his protective hand over his son's head, well aware of the history and complexities of this environment. This isn't New York. In the packed bus, African Americans are seated in the front to convey the past history of segregation and Jim Crow laws, and to visually reverse those images and place the proverbial shoe on the other foot. The bus represents the not-so-distant past, where blacks had to leave the South and move north with the hope of being treated as equals and to have opportunities that were not granted in the South. Having the bus arrive from New York City, I am alluding to the forward progress the South has made and to show that it is not the same 1950s South in which families were forced to relocate to have a shot at equal opportunities. Families are returning to the South just as the, just as the one in the painting. Businesses are being opened by minorities, and opportunities are becoming available. However, the harsh reality is that there is still a tremendous amount of work to be done, and that is conveyed in the older black porter still doing the hard work, the carrying of others' dreams, of others' burdens. The South still has lessons to be learned, nightmares to wait from, and atrocities to account for. In the painting, down one street in the far distance is a Confederate monument standing tall, reminding all of the horrible history that this city holds. And yet, down another street, there are two children of different races playing tag together, giving a different view of the same city. Which road are we going down? Which south are we portraying? I could have easily made a picture-perfect postcard, presenting a south and a savannah that is as beautiful as the city itself. But that's only one story, and this building, and this restaurant, and this chef, and this staff, in this city, in this state, in this country, is writing another one. Collected Stories is still being written, and I am honored to be a part of its telling. Um, Marcus is a smart guy, right? <laughs> um, until we read the artist brief, like, I sat with him one night, and he kind of told me a little bit about the painting, but until we, he wrote that artist brief and we read it, I had no idea all of that was um, layered into that piece. Um, you want to talk about Marcus a little bit? Yeah, so Marcus Kenny is a Louisiana native, um, born and raised there, and he grew up poor. Um, 
He was raised by his, his parents, um, and he was a little bit of the black sheep of the family. It wasn't like the ideal sort of upbringing. Um, he moved to Savannah and attended SCAD. He, um, he met his wife not too long after that, and he just is proven to be a very loyal and family devoted person. He's carefree with his love beads around his neck and um, is changing his facial hair every time you see him. Um, he's very- This is why we get along. <laughs> he's, very, um, he's very introspective. He's always thinking and he's always willing to have a, uh, a difficult conversation. Um, like I said, he's a father and a husband. And I think because of that, because of all those things, because he's raising a family in this day and time, he really thinks about race, he thinks about race relations. And if you look at his friends and you look at his close network, he's constantly having people from different, different places and all around the world with different struggles around in his circle. And I think those people influence him. And I think because of that, he was a great person to have do this, um, do this artist work for us because he's been doing art in Savannah for maybe the last 20 years. Yeah, and Marcus takes a lot of grief for his art because he's a white guy. <clears throat> he often uses these tribal masks in his artwork and he uses a lot of um, He illusion. uses color. Yeah, he uses mm -hmm. color a lot. And, um, uh, and so he, um, in a way, I think has um, fortuitously or serendipitously, we asked him to do this piece and he was already having, forcing the conversation about race in Savannah. And, I don't know that Misham and I ever intended to force a conversation about race, but when we got together, um, it was inevitable that it was the conversation automatic. became mm -hmm. about race. Okay. Now we're going to introduce ourselves. We call that, we call that a cold open. <laughs> okay, well, I'm Michelle Bailey. <laughs> I am I'm the executive chef at the Gray. I'm also, you know, the creative. Right, I'm the I'm the flower blooming in the in the yard. I'm also the I'm also the face of the organization. Um, I uh, you know um, you see me all around, and if and lately you've been seeing more of Jono, but. People walk in the restaurant and they want they want to look in the kitchen and they want to see me there. It's an open kitchen. It's open as it can be in a in this space, but there's a huge glass sort of curved window that comes in as you're going to your table. So you look in the kitchen and you know 90% of the time you'll see me there. And so people recognize and think about the gray, they think about my face and my food. <laughs> um, and I run the back of house. I take care of all things and all needs back of house maintenance stuff i take care i oversee the porters who wash all the dishes and clean the building i do the training i take care of the training for the line cooks i don't do it all by myself but i manage that team who takes care of those inner workings of the um gray um so like on a personal note i love retail therapy <laughs> i just i my, i think my grandmother got me into it i think she would take us in the car she would roll up the windows and smoke a ton of cigarettes and like take us to the mall and we would just walk around and just kind of spend time together and you know window shop really and it's a way that i really sort of like you know relax and release and turn off um you know when i'm not doing that maybe i'll watch netflix 
Um, but I really sort of like to kind of be outdoors and be outside, but I'm a city girl, so it can't be too much of this. It needs to be a little <laughs> bit more concrete for me. Um, and, you know, I think the things that brought me to food and why I decided to cook was that I grew up with some good cooks and they really took pride in all the whole process of it, right? They would take us to the store to go food shopping and then they would come, we would come back to the house and put all the groceries away. We would clean the vegetables, we would chop, we would put things in the pot and we would talk about family and history during those times and then we would sit at the table and we would eat together. And one thing my grandmother kind of hated about my father is that we would sort of eat in a way that the TV was on and you know we were sort of a little distracted from each other and she nipped that right in the bud and canceled all that out and I think because of that is why um, being a chef is why I'm doing what I'm doing I love the communal part of it you know I must admit like I was like shaking before all of you walked in here and but this is the part that I like the part about sharing and experiences so I think that's why I do what I do. Um, like Mishama, I grew up in one of the outer boroughs of New York City. Mishama grew up in Queens. I grew up in Staten Island, um, which was the neighborhood I grew up in was cops and firemen. That was it. And mafia. Um, yeah. And I'm not even kidding about that. Uh, my dad was a fireman. I'm one of five. And um, 1970s New York City fireman salary. Poor is not the right word. I mean. Poor people are poor. We were middle, uh, lower middle class, but like that kind of middle class that you're always struggling with. Like you get paid on the second Friday and your paycheck's gone by the time you, you know, my dad got home. <clears throat> and so that created um, a volatility, I guess, in our house. And the reason that I came to food so and became a restaurateur at age 47, before this, I was in sort of the entertainment and internet and art spaces. I was not anything to do with restaurants. Um, but that Sunday afternoon dinner at my grandmother's house was the only time like my old man wasn't kind of crazy or wrecking the joint or something. And so um, that connection to, you know, peace and calm was always around the dinner table. And for me, like Carol, my wife, who's sitting in the front row here, um, our entire adult life has been about food, it's been about chasing food and wine, travel for it, you know, every penny of disposable income we use on entertainment is spent, was spent on food and wine, or the means to get to food and wine. And so it was a natural um, for me to sort of move into this as my next phase of my career, I guess. And at the gray, I'm the front of the house guy. Like you walk in, I'm standing there, I say, hey, um, I run sort of the admin, like I'm a business guy, part on the CPA, um, and, uh, and I do the wine, funny enough, which is very intimidating to be here and to <laughs> claim you're a wine. He's like, yeah, I'm a farmer. <laughs> Um, and then Andy last night, who was just dropping the most epic wines on us uh, during dinner. It's just, but um, that's my role at the Gray. Um, and one thing I will say about how Misham and I have tackled the Gray, and this will sort of is a precursor to what we're going to talk about next, is it's collaborative all the time. And that is a big reason that I think we're in business together. Um, 
And we, there's no decision, big or small, that gets made that we both aren't in on, at least to some degree. Um, and I think that that's been part of the, um, the genius of what we've been doing. Um, so I was at a crossroads in my career. I was with the same business partner doing investments in media and entertainment companies for almost 20 years in New York City, Los Angeles, a little bit in Europe. And he and I were splitting up. And um, this was after a long time together. And it was vitriolic. Anyone who's been through a partnership and then a breakup of a partnership, I would imagine, I've never been divorced, but I would imagine it's a very similar thing. It was very vitriolic. Um, we, everything that we had built to date, we had to liquidate. It took like five years to get it all wrapped up. And over the last part of our career together, um, we had lost our way anyway. Like we were really focused guys when we were in our early 30s and you know, we were making film and television and we were doing all this stuff. And then it just like became more and more about money and less and less about passion. And you start doing deals that didn't really make sense to the things that I believed in personally. And so that combined with just a parting of the sort of common ground, um, we split up. At that same time, Carol and I had bought this house in Savannah, Georgia, after driving through it and spending 36 hours there. The next year we went back, I'm not even kidding. And Carol said she had to be there for a conference, and I was like, yeah, let's go, I'll go with you. And, but we have to look at real estate. She's like, why are we gonna look at real estate in Savannah, Georgia? We don't know anyone, we don't have any connection there. I'm like, well, we never like it. We left that next weekend with a house under contract. Um, that was supposed to be like sort of a long-term investment. Breaking up with the business partner, have this house in Savannah, um, finally complete the breakup, and I said to Carol, I'm like, I can't, I don't wanna do this in New York City anymore. I don't wanna start over, I don't want to you know, build this business on my own. Um, so I'm just gonna look for opportunity in Savannah. And I, you know, I always say about myself, like I'm a hustler, I just hustle up business, right? Whatever I have done in my life, I just sort of put my mind to it. And she's like, all right, what are you gonna do? I'm like, I don't know, I'll buy real estate. And she's like, what do you know about real estate? I'm like, how hard could it be to buy real estate? Is there I don't know. And so I did, I bought a couple of buildings. Um, and one of them happened to be this great now bus terminal because I was so struck by the architecture of the building. It was, it's like the only example, um, or there's maybe two or three examples in Savannah of Art Deco architecture, which it's hard not to like Art Deco, right? It's got curves, it's got chrome, it's got glass, it's just beautiful. And so I bought the building and- Which the, was a room. It was, yeah, and it was a room. It was behind a white piece of plywood, you went down MLK Boulevard, you didn't even know there was a building there. And inside it was just complete, um, it had been abandoned for a dozen years, it was a complete disaster. I immediately called people I knew in New York City, hired designers within like a few weeks of that day. And we were on our way, like we were sketching by that summer, um, the designs, and this I closed in March. And the designers kept saying to me, you know, we can't build a restaurant if you don't know what the food is, if you don't know what the kitchen looks like, if you don't know how many people, like they were asking me, they asked me questions like, you know, how many seats do you want? I was like, how many can we fit? And they would be like, 
yeah, well, you know, that kind of impacts the kitchen, and, you know, this is all dimensionally, like, a challenge, and I'm like, I don't know. And so they kept hitting me on this, you have to find a chef, you have to find a chef, you have to find a chef, or we're not going to be able to go forward. And one day, they convinced me, because, and I won't get into it, but buy the book when it comes out. There was this whole discussion about a dish pit, which I had never even heard of, right? Dish pit is where all the dishes get done. Never heard the word before. And the kitchen consultant was like, what are we gonna do, where's the dish pit? I'm like, I had to Google, I Googled dish pit. And after I had to Google dish pit, I was like, I really need some help here. And I knew from the beginning that hiring a chef was not my ideal outcome. Because again, I, having been an entrepreneur my whole life, one thing I was really practiced at was getting into business with people as opposed to hiring. And I kind of knew that my ideal scenario would be to find a business partner that wanted to run, the, you know, I could run the business part of it, but I didn't know how to run the restaurant part of it. And so I decided that I was going to find a business partner. And I started to meet chefs. And inevitably, every chef I met looked like me. They were a white guy. They were testosterone driven. Every recipe they had was handed to them by God. And a stroke of lightning and um, and you know, and I was just like, oh, these me and this guy will kill each other, even though they were good cooks. And one day I was walking around the building, same kind of scenario, and I was really like being introspective about what was what went on in the building, um, and that it was a segregated bus terminal when it was built in 38. And I was standing, you know, in the big room, which was the white people's waiting room. And you look at the little room in the back, and it was the colored waiting room. And I was thinking about sort of the makeup of Savannah, which is 53, 54% African-American community. And the minority in Savannah is the white community. And I was like, oh, you know what I really need? to like, if we're gonna make this place impactful to this community, which is what I was mostly interested in, in addition to really good food and drink, um, I need somebody exactly the opposite of me to, to be my business partner in this thing. And I called the designers, I'm like, we need to find a black woman as my business partner. And they were like, uh, yeah, do you know the stats of like how many black women are working in kitchens in America at that level? It's like none. There aren't any. It's a really, really they're African American <laughs> African Americans as head as There's a few of us. Okay, so while Jono was driving across around the country and buying real estate, I was uh, I was building my career. Um, I've been cooking for about twenty years to this point, to this day. And when I met Jono about six years ago, I was um, I'd worked in, you know, Michelin starred kitchens, I've worked in New York City, you know, starred kitchens. And I was really the only black woman that was working in those settings. And, and they were all male dominated, all of them. And I remember in 2007, I decided to go to France. And I went to France through an internship and through this um, culinary program, working under this woman called Ann Willens. And Ann Willens had a cooking school called Lava Rain in Burgundy. And I went there sort of like not expecting anything, not speaking French, and lived in the countryside in a chateau. And I realized that it had so much to do 
with Southern food. I realized that that sort of French cooking, which I was trained in in culinary school many years before that, and which I really had a love interest for, really reminded me of low and slow, farm to table, grains and cream and butter and, 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 and breads, and this artisanal way of looking at the environment. And I realized then in 2008 that I wanted to move to the South. My mother is from the South. She grew up in Waynesboro, Georgia. I spent summers in Waynesboro, Georgia. We lived in Savannah when I was growing up as a child, ironically enough. Went to elementary school there, went to Charles Ellis. At 11, moved back to New York City. And so there was this sort of like inherent part of me that wanted to move back home. I wanted to be around my relatives, I wanted to be around my family, and I wanted to be in that environment that was just a little bit slower and cooking in a way that was more heartfelt. And that may be disrespectful to people who are cooking up north, but it just seemed all-encompassing to me, cooking in the south. And so when I returned from France, um, and Anne Wellens gave me a great piece of advice, I thought I was going to be a food writer, I thought, I, you know, my, I was all over the place, and she was like, no girl, you need to cook, because a lot of people um, don't cook like you, and they don't cook from a place that you cook from, so you should really look into that. So I went back into the male-dominated um, kitchens because I just felt like I needed to sharpen up. I needed to get ready for the world that was going to be out there and learn more about how competitive it was going to be, or learn more about who I was going to be cooking with, or who my chef mentors were going to be. And so, I sort of stayed in that little bit, and then I heard about Gabrielle. And when I heard about her, I didn't realize her restaurant was so small. I didn't realize that her reputation was so large. I just knew that she was a great cook. And more than being a great cook, she was a great leader. She was empowering, right? She gave people, um, she gave people an opportunity to figure out who they wanted to be and what that kitchen voice was going to be. And in a lot of other kitchens, when you have this brigade system, you don't really get that. You're sort of told what to do, and you do it, and you hope that the chef notices that you've done it better than everyone else, but you don't really have a lot of room to, a lot of room to be creative. But she allowed you to do that through things like family meal and specials. Like these were things that you had to think about. And let me tell you, if you put up like a shitty family meal, like they would talk about it. And you didn't want to be that person, right? You wanted to, like if you were going to cook Indian food, you wanted naan, and you wanted um, South Paneer, you wanted lentils, you wanted all of the fixings, right? You didn't want to be that person that was kind of like, ugh, is there passion here? Is there like love in this food? And so that was really, for me, um, a moment where I realized that it was more than just titles and more than just, you know, more than just kind of uh, bragging rights. It was about digging deep and figuring out what your voice is. And I didn't grow up on a farm and I didn't grow up, you know, with a mother that was home. My mother worked, she went to night school. So I had to pull from those places and figure out like what that voice really sounded like. And I worked for her for about four years. And when she, and before Jono came into the picture, she was ready to expand her business. And she wanted to open up a CSA. And I lived in, um, I lived in East New York and Bedford-Stuyvesant, Brooklyn, when I was cooking. And if people have visited New York, they understand that like those places are sort of, they're food deserts, right? They're really difficult to get 
fresh food. You can buy a bell pepper that's wrapped in cellophane. And you get it home and maybe the other side has like a little piece of mold on it because like they're just sort of pushing those kind of products through. So opening up the CSA was really important to me because I lived in a neighborhood that didn't have fresh food. And I wanted to change that. A CSA is a community um, supportive like agriculture. So it's like the, 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 the farmer brings um, produce, it's an acronym that I can't remember what it stands for, but the farmer brings produce and it's a community-based um, thing. So if they have a lot of tomatoes, then you get like a big basket full of tomatoes and plus like other things that the farmer grows. But it's really just fresh food. And she wanted to open up um, not really a restaurant, but more of like a deli or, or sort of like a sort of like a, a Dean and DeLuca place where you can buy some prepared foods surrounding this principle of the CSA. But that didn't work out, right? And yeah, I've been here for three years already, and I was ready to move on. And I was I was trying to figure out like what my plan was going to be. I wanted to think about raising money. I thought about ownership. I started doing supper clubs. I started cooking in my grandmother's house using her china and all her you know beautiful table settings. And um, I was having some conversations that really felt like what I was doing was the right thing to do. And I really felt like there was gonna be a certain amount of support and backing behind me that was really homegrown. And I was like starting to get a little confidence in like, you know, my baked chicken and all those things that, all those recipes that I felt like really represented me. And, you know, sort of like, just kind of like grinding and working. And one day Gabrielle, um, she had went to an event in Mississippi and she came back and had the same reaction as John O. It's like, I went to this event and it was all white chefs. And not only were there all white chefs, there were very few women chefs. And not only were there very few women chefs, there were no black women chefs. And I was like, oh shit, Gabrielle thinks I'm a chef. <laughs> conversation that she met with Jono and not knowing him at all like he said he was a stalker so not knowing who he was or anything about him she took a meeting with him and in that meeting he started to lay out the things that he was interested in and she thought about me and she was just that type of person she did it in the training of her cooks she did it in the philosophy around the restaurant and she did it as a human being she just paid it forward and so she just said, listen, there's this guy who wants to open up a restaurant in Savannah, and you should, you know, if you want to talk to him, I'll give him your information. And it was like right around the time Paula Dean's um, whole <laughs> thing kind of exploded, and I was like, oh my God, this is like some racist white guy who like wants to exploit black people in food. I was like, no, I don't want to do it. And I was like standing next to some cooks, and they were like, contacted him and I did feel a sense of relief when I realized he was from Staten Island to be quite honest and he wasn't from Savannah, Georgia. So we took the meeting and at the meeting, Jono, like he said, blared all this information at me for four for four hours. We had our first meeting was for four hours. For the first two there were no drinks. drinks, which was good. And he laid out these blueprints. And in laying out these blueprints, he showed me this space. Now, Prune is 34 seats. 
That's four seats at the bar, people. You are like knocking knees. You need to really get along with the people that you are eating with and also who you're sitting next to because it's tight. And he opens up this thing and it's a freaking bus station and there's like seats everywhere. There's like picnic benches outside. There's like possible seats upstairs. There's two private dining rooms. There's a front bar. And I'm like, okay. I'm like, you do realize that I'm a sous chef at a 34 seat restaurant. And I'm just kind of like, all right, let's see what happens. Yes, and, you know, and so, we looked at this blueprint and he started to talk about the building. They started to talk about the history of the building and then he got to the back of the building. And he said, this is where the colored waiting room was. And I was like, wait, what? And he's like, I was like, is it still there? Like, is it still physically in the same condition that it was when the building was built in 1938? He goes, yeah. I was like, is the signage still there? And he's like, yeah, I think so. And I was like, wow. And how long has the building been closed? And it's been abandoned for like only 10 years, but all these things were still in place. And I was, I was, at that moment, I was really interested in seeing the building. Like I wasn't necessarily that interested in a business partnership because I didn't really know what that meant. I wasn't really interested in becoming this executive chef because I didn't really know what that meant. But I was like, I gotta get down here and see this building because I don't know if I'll ever see a building like that again in life. And that's how I took sort of baby steps into like this huge role that um, I didn't really even realize how big it was. And I knew also, it was also the building, but I also knew that as with the supper clubs and trying to figure out like how to open up my own small restaurant similar to Gabrielle's, I knew that I wanted to own something. And you know, and truth be told, the partnership was a very interesting thing. It was like sort of like no one was really offering that. It was like if I was going to stay in New York City, I was going to have to continue working my way up. I was going to be an executive chef. I was going to be paid a salary. But this was about owning something and actually having a voice in how you create a culture surrounding the restaurant. And it wasn't until I walked in that space, and it wasn't until I sort of remained still and decided to kind of take it all in was when I decided to do it. It wasn't until then. And so I think if it was, if I never would have visited Savannah, we wouldn't be in yeah. business together. Yeah, I don't think if she hadn't seen the building. So, so the building, the, the creation of the building and the preservation was sort of the thing that brought us together because she was like, she, she agreed basically that we needed to preserve this building and make it something special. And so, the next challenge for us was, okay, so Mishama moves to Savannah, like picks up her entire life in New York City, drives and puts it in the back of her car, drives down to Savannah, and now we're in business <laughs> together. Like it literally, it- We it, met in November and I was in Savannah by May. Yeah, yeah, and it was, um, and so now we have this partnership and um, really no foundation for it at all. Zero. Like we didn't know each other. Um, Mishama had never been a partner in anything, um, which is, I, I kind of equate it to when you get married and you have to refer to your spouse as your wife or your husband for like the first few years, it's kind of a hard word to say, it was for me. Like I had never been a husband, right? And Carol was always Carol's, but she wasn't my wife for the first four years I knew her. And I think that that struggle over what a partnership is, um, uh, was was real for, for Mishama and me to try and figure out our roles in all of that. And um, and so we didn't really have any basis to trust each other other than 
we said that we're going to get into business together. So we, we spent the next few years trying to figure out how to develop a relationship that could become collaborative, that we could um, work together. And then, like, I am really, truly an idealist and um, a very, I think that one of the qualities that works for entrepreneurs is to have like this sort of unbridled naivete, right? Because you think anything is possible. And I was gonna feel like that. I'm like, hey, if we open this restaurant in this formally segregated bus terminal, and I'm a white carpet bagger from New York City, and I bring a black carpet bagger down from New York City, <laughs> we'll just have the entire community come and embrace us, <laughs> right? It's like, you get black people, you get white people, you get all people. Um, it's a win-win. Yeah, it's a win-win. <laughs> it was like a completely ridiculous plan. Um, we couldn't even attract black employees. Like, yeah. it was, everything about it was a struggle um, from a diversity point of view. And the thing that I really didn't bank on is that once Michelle and I got into business together, um, again, I had this very idealistic view of it, right? I had this like us arm in arm, you know, as this model of diversity for what a lot of people refer to as the new South, which I don't really like that term personally. I think the dynamic South is probably a better way to do it because I think the South is the South, or at least what I know of it for the last 10 years. But once we got into business together, um, what really happened to me and what I saw in Mishama is that everything that I grew up with, every, and there's all these terms for it now, like when I was growing up, there were no terms for it, but all of my inherent biases, all of my unconscious biases, all of my bias biases, <laughs> all of those things. You know, I grew up in a cop and firing family in New York City in the 70s, yeah. right? People of color were the enemy to my father, to my brothers. In my household, the N word was used regularly. Not all the time, but it was not thought of as anything but a descriptor. A really mean spirit of descriptor. And so, having been sort of this product of a very insular neighborhood, right, where I grew up in Staten Island, um, and then in my professional career, like I worked at Price Warehouse, right? One of the whitest places in America. Uh, <laughs> it's much more diversified now. I think it's all. Um, no, but my career, like my social life, like it was white. It was white. I mean, that's that's who my friends were. That's who my colleagues were. And all of a sudden, I'm in business with this black woman, and I was completely. And when I say completely unprepared, completely unprepared for the first time we hit a speed bump. Because it's all great. You don't really consider your, your inherent biases when everything's singing along and you're, you're running this business, right? It's like, hey, we're in business together, it's great. But that's literally the first time we hit a speed bump. You go, oh, did I just think that her skin color might have something to do with this? And you're like, holy shit, that's a really, really shocking, shocking moment. And that happened three months into the relationship of her being down there. Um, and so overcoming all the challenges of newness, of new partnership, 
of my inherent biases, my unconscious biases, my bias biases. Would you like to speak about some of your challenges? I have no challenges. <laughs> um, I grew up in a black neighborhood. I grew up in a very, uh, always, my whole life, I was surrounded by the same people that looked like me, right? There wasn't this whole gentrification going on when I was growing up, and now it's starting to, neighborhoods are starting to look different. Old neighborhoods that I live in or lived in growing up are starting to look different, but I've always been surrounded by um, black people. But, you know, when you go, when you start to leave that community, you are confronted with people of different races, you are confronted with white people in a way that you just become, in a way that you've probably been educated on your whole life, you know, like it depends on the era. I think my parents learned something different, but for me it's like you kind of keep things close to the vest. You don't really, you don't really, you don't show, you don't show everything, right? You just, because it will get taken from you. <laughs> like your ideas, and like, and certain things will be sort of taken and reinterpreted, and now it's marketable, or now it's now it now money can be made on it. Like we just have a history of so many things being ripped from us that there is this skepticalness that when you enter into an environment full of white people, or you enter into a partnership with a white person, you have to be careful, and you have to also continue to surround yourself with people who look like you because you can kind of get lost in that. And so I think moving to the South, partnering with Jono and, and working with him, that part of my personality was starting to come out slowly and he didn't understand it. He wanted me to like just kind of like have it all kind of splayed out and we figure it out from there. And I was, it was too valuable because I wasn't sure like what, what this meant. I wasn't sure if I was gonna be taken care of, if, it, if there was a sense of security for me. I wasn't sure what I was getting from this partnership. I understood what he was getting, but I wasn't quite sure what I was getting. And so I think that we, 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 had, to, we had to trust each other. We had to figure it out. And I wasn't really ready for that. I wasn't ready to be just um, all kumbaya and skipping down the street and holding hands and opening up a business where I needed to know like, clearly and undisputedly like what his intentions were. Like what are you gonna do with this information? Like how are you gonna use this information? And um, do I have rights to this information? And so I think that when we did hit a speed bump, you know, we were just both sort of like horses with blinders on because I had a job to do and I had to get a restaurant up and running. Mind you, that I came into that had already sort of been going on, right? So like the building had been bought, the, the plans had been made, the team had been assembled, and I'm plopped into this position where people are asking me about a kitchen and I don't even realize what I'm cooking yet. Right? So it's like all these deadlines are hitting me. There was zero support. Jono didn't understand what, didn't, never opened up a restaurant before. So we didn't know who our purveyors were going to be. We didn't know how we were going to get food. We didn't know how we were going to get paper towels. So all of that stuff, I was sort of like, it was like just kind of speeding past me. And I was just kind of standing there like, do I really want to do this? Like, am I really here for the right reasons? Like, is this like a good, is this good? And I think once we, 
once we hit that speed bump and we just basically had an argument, you know, about what my intentions were versus what his intentions were, how I felt, what I felt that I was contributing versus what he felt like he was contributing, we just kind of had it out. And once we realized that we both wanted the same thing, we started to work through those sticky parts. And even to like five weeks ago, I'm writing this book, we still were working through those sticky parts because, you know. They're sticky. They're sticky. <laughs> and you don't want to expose them to light, right? You just kind of want to bury them a little bit. And you're like, I'm, that's fine that you're white. It's totally fine. Like, I totally <laughs> get it. <laughs> One of the things Rishama said to me when we had our first meeting in Savannah, at the end of it, we had been drinking. Right now. It was and she said to me, like, we decided that we were going to pursue the relationship. And she said to me, um, you know, there's something you need to know about me. And she said, because um, I asked her about her name, Mishama, and she told me it means surprise. And she said, oh, my father was in this thing in the 70s when he was having kids where he named us, he, used, um, he named us all African names. Yeah. So it's Mishama, Dawood, and Zawina, or her two siblings. And she's like, you need to know something. Like, my dad was a little black power. <laughs> and I was like, cool. And she's like, you should know, like, I'm a little black power too. And I'm like, note to self. Google black power. <laughs> because I quite literally didn't know what that meant. Like, not, you know, I, I, I heard the term, but I didn't really know what that meant. And um, we, we talk about it a lot now. Go ahead, sorry. Yeah, and it's not about like, you know, me fighting Jono from possessing my, you know, my integrity. It's all about, you know, empowering the community and bringing people along and building something that people can grow from and you know in this country we have to support ourselves we have to we have to give back to ourselves and i think that that part you know gets blurry sometimes but you know when my father was raising his family he just let us know how important it was to give back to the community how important it was to be engaged with our community and understand that we are, you know, very different. <laughs> you know, we have a very different struggle than other people and don't confuse that. And I think how that reflects in our, in our business and how we wanted it to reflect in our business was through staffing and through training. And the, one of the things that never, like, that not never happened, but it took a long time and it was really disappointing to me was that the only people who would apply for a job at the grade were black in the kitchen, washing dishes. That was it. Like you would not see a black manager walk in there with like these years of experience. You would not see a black server walk in there and want to work with us. They were in the kitchen washing dishes. And I did not get it. I didn't understand it. I didn't know how to I didn't know how to communicate with people like that because I was just kind of like, what are you doing? Like you can like, why are you doing this? I can train you to be all these other things. And they just didn't want to get they didn't want to engage. They didn't want to engage. And I think that that had to do with Jono and I trusting each other. Like, because it didn't happen overnight, it happened over years. And I think as we began to rely on each other, build this business together, and depend on each other, I think people started to see that. And they started to see that it was a real partnership and that they could trust us. And as that started to happen, then you start seeing other, and we started to build our reputation and started to, you know, we were in town and we weren't like this sort of, restaurant that opened and that was going to close and people were giving up security and their livelihoods for you know coming over and working with us 
then you started seeing people of different colors and different races come in and want to work with us. Yeah, it was like that sort of slow build of the trust between us that started with that argument over me treating her badly and her not trusting white people and us sort of getting through that and really confronting the fact that that's how we were both raised and you can't wish that out of yourself. And once we sort of saw that as an actual challenge to our business and confronted that challenge and worked through it, and like she said, Michelle just said, like for the five weeks we were in that apartment in Paris, like there were multiple tear sessions. There were multiple, no, like one Saturday afternoon, where it was. <laughs> She's such a liar. <laughs> Um, there really were though, and it was always over those issues. It was always over that one day where we had a real blowout, and it was there was something underlying it that was unspoken at that time. And when we worked through that, and we started, I think that you know, at first your team kind of puts blind trust in you, and this goes into the third point. I know that this talk is going way long, but um, goes into the third point is that once we started to accept the fact that there was a lot of challenges that we had to get through that had to confront, that we had to build common experiences together, common memories together, common things together, get past our, you're never, I firmly believe that I'm never knocking my unconscious and inherent biases out of myself, right? I just don't know that that's possible because I think that they're just in you. You can't go through that much of a formative part of your life without having that somewhere inside of you. But confronting them and accepting them as part of your DNA and how you were made up um, once we were able to do that, I think then our team started to look at us in a different way. So we were always talking about team first, team first, team first. That's our culture, right? If you take care of each other, if everybody takes care of each other, we have like, you know, there's all these cliche things in the restaurant business. If you drop something, pick it up. If somebody else drops something, pick it up, right? That's all the team first kind of thing. It was great to say it for the first few years, but we weren't really doing it between the two of us. Not really. And one thing about people is they're super intuitive. So if they know there's something underlying or some tension between you, they're never going to fully give themselves over to your mission, to your culture. And the biggest strides that we made um, as we were doing this is Shama references the porters, right? Um, the guys washing the dishes. We struggled with them for years because we didn't understand. Um, a lot of what they were doing. We didn't understand their job. We didn't understand how it feels to stand in a dish pit as more likely than not an African-American male um, and have white servers come in and just fling dishes at you in the middle of service all night long. And if, you, if that dish pit breaks down, your service breaks down. Like you can't serve your guests. And we would run through porters like nobody's business. Like they would come, they'd work a few weeks, they would be gone. The shaman was struggling with them. There were gender issues like, you know, why is this woman telling me what to do? There were race issues. Why are these white people flinging dishes at me? All these issues. And we just didn't get it. Talk about the blindness. We were just like, <laughs> and then all the porters were. Like we were literally down to one porter. We were talking about limiting our service that night because we couldn't wash dishes. And Misham and I are like, we're literally at our wit's end at this point. And we're like, we basically have to ask everybody to volunteer for dish pit shifts. 
And so we did. And everybody volunteered. Everybody in the restaurant volunteered. And for the next two weeks, everybody was working dish. Everybody was cleaning the building. And all of a sudden, everybody had the perspective of the portals. And we didn't, it was like, I wish we could say this was a genius move on our part, but it was sheer desperation. It was a total, yeah, it was total desperation. Yeah. And once they, and once they got that point, I think that's when they started to respect the, 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 the part, the hardest part. Cause I don't think they ever realized it was the hardest part. They really they thought it was like this sort of annoying sort of obstacle that they had to get over in order to go home, right? Because you have to like clean all the silverware, wipe all the glasses, and they need the porters to do that in order for them to go home. So there was this real, there was this obstacle that the front of house didn't understand that that was really a part of their job too, and they needed to respect that position. And I think once that happened, the communication started to change. And there was this there was this underlying respect that happened for these people that we didn't even realize wasn't happening. And I think that was the biggest part. Like we thought we were doing everything we needed to do. We were talking about we were talking to them on a daily basis. We were bringing them in, having meetings and trying to figure out, like really trying to get to the root of the problem. And it wasn't until the entire staff had to go through that position in that space in, in order to understand like how we could and, and, improve it. And led by Mishama. Like that was sort of the key thing is like we it's in those moments where it's like you look at each other and we're like this is all we got you know we got to figure this out together right and again it was loaded issue it was race it was gender it was um you know a lot of the porters were coming out of halfway houses like they had really troubled pasts i mean there were all these societal issues and we were like we have to kind of solve this microcosm of this big societal issue within our own space as a black woman and a white guy, both of whom struggled for different reasons with this particular group of people. And now we can say that, you know, we've had porters that's been there for like two years, oh, yeah, three no, years, you know, like, but like the first two years were really hard. Yeah. They were really, really hard. Um, and so, we did get through all three of our themes. <laughs> building the building, building trust, and team and culture. Uh, which is what we just told you about, because the accountant in me is doing my conclusion um, card now. Um, but yeah, I mean, that's the story. That's, um, you know, that's what we're doing in Savannah. And when we were writing the book, um, we don't really talk about food at all. You know, um, because that was one of the sensitivities. Yeah. So, <laughs> um, <laughs> because the food and the service is what we love, and it's the passion that makes us do this. And when when we put this together, like I don't, I did want to impact the community when I thought of the bread. But I didn't know that this would happen, right? I didn't know that um, we would be having this conversation. Even when we set out to write the book, um, actually, I wrote the book originally. I said to Michelle, let's write a book. And she, she was like, I can't. I don't have the bandwidth to write a book. And I'm like, I want to start telling the story. So I wrote a manuscript. We sold the manuscript. And then we came up with the idea of, with our editor, of incorporating Michelle into the book as an overlay of the narrative which is a very similar dynamic, I think, to what um, is our relationship. It's like, I'm the guy's, let's do this, let's do this, let's do this. And she's like, 
will you shut up? Go <laughs> greet a guest or something, you know? Um, and then she'll come back to me a couple of days later and she'll say, you know what? I was thinking about that. And while your idea is stupid, <laughs> my version of your idea is <laughs> the altered version is really good. It's all about perception, yeah, people. Exactly. I don't know if that's and no, accurate. In, in, in truth, there's a, that's actually really true because my idea is always really sort of right down the middle and not nuanced. And the shaman's versions of them are usually have a lot more nuance to them and thoughtfulness. And I actually think there's some gender issue in that. You know, it's like right down the middle is a very male way to do things. And I think, you know, when you put a female perspective on it, there's always nuance that's added to it, which is another sort of good thing about this whole partnership. But um, yeah, so we, so that's, I'm done. I got nothing. <laughs> Thank you for listening to the Blyberry Podcast. Continue following the journey wherever you subscribe. Thank you to our guests, interviewers, and audience. Dive into more stories, videos, photos, and podcast episodes on theblackberrymagazine.com. Make a great day. Thank you.